Yeah. It does our hearts well um, to, to see you guys and, and for you to share these things with us. Um, the people that Lauren mentioned, um, we do have some folks out there, and their primary uh, purpose for being out in the field. I don't, I don't want to, because we're, we're on tape here, um, not tape, but um, there, are, yeah, there are people that we support, that Charlie and Janet support, who are out there, and it affects them. And I think, you know, what, what Lauren said, whenever we read the news, we should read it with a view towards God's heart for the world. As we read, you know, they used to always say, the ancients used to say that when you go to your prayer closet, you should have two things with you. You should have the Word of God and you should have a newspaper. Right? As you read the Word, that, in, that fuels our prayers. And as you read the newspaper, that fuels your intercession. As you begin to pray for the nations of the world and the things that are going on, as we hear about um, that downed plane and they're talking about it was potentially terrorist activity or wh- whatever it might be. And, and as Lauren said, Ukraine, these things all... Um, because of the body of Christ, it is the, the body of Christ is everywhere throughout the world. What happens in the news affects, necessarily affects our brothers and our sisters, even the ones who are, especially the ones who are out of sight. They can easily be out of mind, but God calls us to remember in Hebrews those who are in prison, who are suffering. Um, these are our brothers and sisters as well. And so the connectivity of the body uh, we're reminded of as we hear from an extension of our body, James and Lauren. So um, thanks so much for sharing. We. Uh, I don't know, um, one of the things I, I, I tell Olive when we parent our children is that we need to under-promise and, and over-deliver. And so we can't over-promise anything, but one thing we do promise is that we're praying for you guys every Wednesday night as the intercessors come together. We're praying for y'all by name. We pray for you, and um, you guys are, uh, are part of us. So thanks for, uh, for doing what you do so that we can do what we do um, as, a har- as harvesters together. We're uh, talking this morning about the, the Ten Commandments, and I, you know whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, um, you've heard probably that term, the Ten Commandments. You may not know that it comes from the Bible, but somewhere along the way, you've heard this phrase, the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard in the context of um, this blog article that's like the Ten Commandments for dating, or the Ten Commandments for raising children, or the Ten Commandments for babysitting, or whatever that case might be. You've heard that term, the Ten Commandments, um, because it's something that's so familiar. It goes all the way back to the Bible. I think that uh, what I want to mention at the outset um, this morning is one of the, as you, as you read the news, you read about some of the things that, that Lauren talked about. You read the news and, and hear about in the Orlando Sentinel about a woman who drives her car filled with children into Daytona Beach. You read about things like that. And at, the, at, at a simple level, right, to oversimplify everything, you could say that many of the challenges in life, many of the problems in life, many of the societal ills in life come from a lack of knowing or implementing the Ten Commandments into life. Right? If we didn't kill, then the murder rate would be zero. <laughs> right? If we didn't steal, then we probably wouldn't need to have surveillance cameras around everywhere. Uh, There would be a whole lot less news to report because according to some news people, they say, well, the good news doesn't get thrown on the news. The good news uh, gets relegated to the back page. The bad news is what goes up there. Why? Why? Because if it bleeds, it leads. That's a tagline of of many newspapers and news organizations. They want to put all that stuff on there. They wouldn't have anything to put up there if we knew and implemented the Ten Commandments into our lives. But I would venture to say that for followers of Christ, if we know the Ten Commandments, 
then a lot of our challenge as Christians, the reason why we're burnt out all the time, the reason we're tired all the time, the reason why we don't feel like we're good enough to be loved by God is because not do we, it's not that we don't know the Ten Commandments or that we don't try to live them out. It's that we have a misunderstanding of their purpose as God originally gave them to us. So I want to kind of flesh this out a little bit. We've been going through the Bible from the beginning, looking at the story of history as it comes to us from the Bible. We looked at creation. We looked at Adam and Eve. We looked at sin. We looked at fall. We saw uh, Cain and Abel. We saw Noah. We saw uh, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, Jacob, the, the chosen line, Joseph, 12 kids, spreading, uh, Joseph, one of 12 kids of Jacob, spreading out to get into Egypt, where Joseph is pretty much the prince, the prime minister of Egypt, leads them on this great plan to save the world by storing up food in the midst of a famine, seven years of famine, I'm sorry, seven years of feasting, seven years of famine. And then we get to this point, 450 years have passed, the people of Israel are living in Egypt and they've, they've blown up. Right? They have expanded like crazy and Pharaoh tries to oppress them. We looked at this last week. God raises up a deliverer from the desert of Midian, a guy named Moses. Moses rises up and at the age of 80, he says, let my people go. The way that he would do that was by God using him as an instrument to bring plagues upon the nation of Egypt. The last plague being the plague of death. Firstborn children all around dead, right? Wake up in the morning and they're all dead unless they have the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorpost. And if they do, then the angel of death passes over them and goes on to the next house. So we get to this place where the Israelites have been delivered out of that slavery. They're, they're being chased by Pharaoh. And they get to a point where they can't go anywhere because in front of them is a raging sea. Behind them is a roaring army. And they're like, oh, stink. We should have never left Egypt. And so the Israelites are yelling at Moses. Moses, you're so dumb. Moses is yelling at God. God, you're so dumb. And, and then God does a miraculous. He parts the Red Sea in order that the Israelites might pass through on dry ground. And as the, as the Egyptians are chasing them, as soon as the last Israelite gets through, God folds the waters back and the e Egyptian army is wiped out. And so we see that song, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. And that was the song of every Israelite as they left Egypt. And so here they are, they're wandering to the land that God promised to Abraham, right? God promised them, hey, I'm going to give you a people. That people has exploded. God's fulfilled that promise. He said, I'm going to give you a land. They're walking towards that land. And as they're going, the Israelites start complaining. It's hot. Are we there yet? You know, why is it taking so long? And so God provides like miraculously crazy, provides manna and quail from heaven so that they could eat, provides water from a rock. And God is doing all of these miraculous things. And Moses is frustrated because never in his 40 years of tending flock sheep has he experienced this kind of frustration and this kind of criticism that he's facing as he's leading the, the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. So where do you go, child of God? Where do you go, leader of God? When you feel you're at the end of your rope, when you feel frustrated, when you feel tired, when you feel burnt out, when you feel beat up, when people are yelling at you, they're saying, what are you doing? Have you made the wrong choices? What do you do? Where do you go? Here's where Moses went. He went to Mount Horeb, which is where he originally met God at a burning bush. Listen, when you're not doing well spiritually, when you feel like I need a, I need a recharging, 
I go back to those places. Right? That's what Revelation, Revelation says. Go back and do the things you did. Go back to those places where you first met God. If it was at, if it was at prayer meeting and you stopped going to prayer meetings, go, go, go pray. If you grew the most when you were doing your devotion, quiet times, every day, consistently, then go back to those places. If it was when you were meeting with accountability partners, go back to those places. But that's where Moses went. He went back to Mount Horeb, which was also called Mount Sinai. We're going to pick up Exodus chapter 20. Because here, the Israelites are about to be formed as a nation. And in order to become a nation, they needed laws. And God was about to give them this set of laws that would help them to be the nation that he was calling them to be. We're going to read uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. This is God's word. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. This is God's word. So this account of the Ten Commandments begins by saying, and God spoke all these words. This is one of the most significant phrases in all of history, that God spoke. Fifteen times, I think, in the first three chapters of the Bible, it says God spoke. When we're not sure... If God has spoken, then we tend to do things in order to get out of this understanding, to get out of the idea that God has spoken. We doubt that God has spoken, right? It's what the the serpent said to Eve. Did God really say? And we doubt that. We distort the word of God. When God said, don't eat of it, she said, he said, don't eat of it. He said, don't even touch it or you'll surely die. We distort the word of God. We deny the word of God and ultimately we disobey the word of God. If we don't believe that it's God who has spoken these words into our lives. And so it begins by saying God spoke all these words. And then he begins, what are the Ten Commandments? I want to give us three signs, three pictures, three images, rather. Three pictures, three images that help us to explain what the Ten Commandments were 
originally to God's people and what they are for us. Here's the first sign. I want to illustrate it to you in this way. Okay, the first thing that the Bible is, the Ten Commandments are, the Word of God is, is it's a sign that distinguishes God's people from the rest of the world. We have signs like this in our world, right? Signs like this that distinguish who is the people, one group of people from the rest of the groups of people. Right? This, is a, this is a uniform. It's a sign that says, if you have this, then you are a sixer. If you're not, then you're not. It distinguishes who plays for the sixers from who plays from every other team in the National Basketball Association. The Bible, is tell, the Bible is telling us that the Ten Commandments were written in order that they might be a sign that distinguishes the people of God from everyone else in the world. So you look at the very first commandment. To have no other gods before me. There was no other nation on earth that believed that you can only have one God. Even today, a lot of nation, a lot of countries in Asia, if you tell them Jesus is God, they'll be like, okay, that's fine. Even people of other religions. Why? Because they have no problem in their pantheon of gods to have Jesus among many other gods. And that's the way it was in the ancient cultures as well. Egypt, from whom they were, we talked about this last week, every one of the 10 plagues was attacking one of the so-called gods of Egypt. And so immediately when God says, you should have no other gods in a world in which there are a plethora of so-called gods, immediately from the very first commandment, they're being set apart from everybody else. And everyone else says, hey, where's, where's your God? Who's the God that you pray to in order to get this? Who's the God you pray to in order to get that? You say, there's just one God, just one God. Just one God, that's it. You, sh- you should um, honor the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Can you imagine for a race of slaves who were driven to work driven into the ground by Pharaoh, the taskmaster, seven days, no rest. All of a sudden, God sets a day apart and says, for one whole day, not only do you not have to work, but you cannot, do not work. Immediately, this sets them apart from everybody else in the ancient world. This is what the commandments were doing. This is what the Ten Commandments do. They set God's people apart from the rest of the world. Now, it's important because the order in which all this happens, it says, I am the Lord, your God. If you look carefully at this word, Lord, there are a lot of different words that um, the Old Testament that the Bible used to talk about God. It says, Lord, L-O-R-D, in, in capital L, little O-R-D. But here, there's capital letters, all capital letters. I am the Lord, your God. Why does he say that? And why does he then go on to say, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery? Here's what God is saying. In essence, he's saying, you are my people because this name lord was all it was a it was a covenantal name it was a name revealed to moses by god at the burning bush this is my name yahweh this is how it's translated in uh, hebrew this is who god is jehovah what we we call jehovah and this is who he is and no other nation on earth can call him capital l capital o capital r R, capital d because god's not in that kind of a covenantal relationship with them when I was little, just like you guys, we grew up, going, grew up going to school, and I had a kindergarten teacher. Her name was Mrs. Stanhope, and Mrs. Stanhope, she was a teacher. That's all she was in my little mind. She was Mrs. Stanhope. She's my kindergarten teacher. She's supposed to be at school. She lives at school. That's all she does. The weirdest thing that ever happened to me was when I saw Mrs. Stanhope at the supermarket. 
I was like, what is she doing here? She's supposed to be in school. That's where she belongs. And I was so scared that I didn't want to, I, I looked at her and then I ran away to where my mom was because I didn't want to see her. And mom said, isn't that your teacher? And I said, mom, please. I didn't, I didn't say that, but I just hid behind her leg. I didn't want to talk to her. And that was Mrs. Stanhope. All of a sudden, this man came up to Mrs. Stanhope. This was really weird for me also because teachers are always single women, even though they're misses. So this man walked up to Mrs. Stanhope and said, Brenda, who the heck is Brenda? That's not Brenda. That's Mrs. Stanhope. That Brenda. No, then Mrs. Stanhope. Why? Because to everyone else in the world, she may be Mrs. Stanhope, but to those who are in an intimate relationship with her, there's a special name, Brenda. In the same way, every other nation on earth knew our creator, the God that we worship as God. But to those in relationship with him, he says, I am the L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is who I am because you are my people. Listen, huge distinction. You do not obey the Ten Commandments in order to be part of the people of God. You don't. God called you his child Therefore, we obey the Ten Commandments. Listen, just because I wear this jersey doesn't make me a member of the Sixers. If I'm part of the team, they'll give me this jersey so that I could be set apart from the other team in the NBA. The relationship comes first. Being part of the community, being part of the people comes first, and then comes a distinguishing mark. See, God calls us his children first, And then he calls us to obedience. You see, the beauty and the power of the Ten Commandments was in its distinction from the commandments of all the other nations and the morality of all of the other nations. Listen, if a team goes to the NBA commissioner, I don't know who the commissioner is anymore, but they come and they say, hey, we want to start a team. We've got tons of money. We want to start a team, and we've got the fan base to do it. He says, okay, uh, what will be your team colors? say, well, I really like um, the dominant red color, And then I want um, the number to be blue outlined in white and the the, the team name to be white with a red outline and then a blue outline on top of that and then a white outline around the whole thing. You're like, that sounds kind of like the Sixers. Yeah, but, you know, red, white, and blue, I'm really patriotic. I love America, and this is kind of the, the colors I want. Okay, that's fine. What do you want your team to be called? Well, we really like the Sixers a lot. We like the name. So we want to become something similar. We want to be called the Fixers. You think that would ever fly in the NBA? It wouldn't. Do you know why? Because these uniforms, these teams were given to distinguish one team from another. And the power of a uniform of a team is that it's different from all of the other teams, from all of the other people in the league. The same thing is true with God's word. So Listen. If people were to look at our lives, would they see a difference between the people of God and the rest of the world? Because the Ten Commandments were a reflection of God's people, but they were a reflection of the God who gave them that law as well. As we look at our lives, what are people thinking and hearing about God by watching the way that we live. David Kinnaman wrote this book called Unchristian. 
And he did this long-term study, and this is what he found. He found that 15% of non-believers, he said only 15% of non-believers see a noticeable difference in the lifestyle of so-called Christians and so-called non-Christians. Only 15%. So is there a difference in the way that we talk to our parents, talk to our children, as opposed to the way that uh, the rest of the world does? Is there a difference in what you do as a Christian on a date versus what non-Christians do on their dates? Between how you live as a husband to a wife, as a wife to a husband, and how you love her and how you respect him, is there a difference between your marriage, Christian marriage, and the marriages of the world? Is there a difference between what you do as you prepare for that test at school, between your desire to, and your decision whether to cheat or not versus the world's decision to cheat or not? Is there a difference in the quality of the eight hours that you put into work between a Christian and a non-Christian, between an honest eight hours of work between one person and, and another person? Is there a difference in the kind of movies that you watch? Not that you're 12 years old and you sneak into a PG-13 movie. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's obviously not right. But to, to think about, okay, I'm 13 years old. I'm 14 years old. I can watch a PG-13 movie. But in its effect on our hearts, there are some PG-13 movies that I, won't, I can't watch because of the effect that it has on my heart and on my devotion to Christ. Is there a difference in how we spend our leisure time versus how people outside the people of God spend our leisure time? If someone were to put a video camera on us as a Christian and some random non-Christian and they were to show this video in a room, would people be able to be able to tell the difference? Because the first thing that the Ten Commandments were given to do and the law was given to do was to set a distinguishing boundary to show who is God's people and who is not. And the power of the Ten Commandments is that there's a difference in the way the people of God live, because that is a reflection of the character of our holy God. That's the first thing. The second thing, then, first thing, right? It's a sign distinguishing God's people from the rest of the world. The second thing that the Ten Commandments were given to do, it was to be a fence to deter evil in the world, right? To deter evil, to deter sin in the world. Kind of like this is, this is a fence, Right? For little people or for puppies or for cats or something like that. This is a fence. You guys know what this is, right? Fences are supposed to do that. They're supposed to keep certain things in and they're supposed to restrain us from doing certain other activities. The Ten Commandments were given to do that. And they're not perfect, just like some people might jump over the fence. And the fence doesn't always serve that purpose. But what it does do is it restrains the evil that could be in the world. It's like a speed limit. There are going to be people, always going to be people who go faster than the speed limit. I was talking with one of the moms of Harvest this week, and she said that, hey, I got, I got uh, stopped by a police because in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, I was going 90 miles an hour. Wow, that's crazy. Like, nice, innocent Harvest mommy, right? 
can guess later who it is. 90 and 55, the cop let her off because, I, I don't know, because she's a, she's a lady and she got let off. I'm just kidding. But she got let off for whatever reason. The speed limit won't keep us from breaking the law, but it, if, if there was no speed limit, then everybody would be going 90 and there'd be accidents everywhere. But the law, the Ten Commandments were given as offense to deter evil and deter, to deter sin in the world. Granted, some people won't listen to the law, won't listen to Ten Commandments, but that's what it was given to do. Therefore, do not steal. If there was no commandment, don't steal, then we'd be looting everywhere, taking people's stuff. Um, honor your father and mother. If it didn't say that, well, some of us would still do that. You shall not commit adultery. If it didn't say that, then people would be committing adultery. Shall not covet. We didn't know that these things were bad until the law, the Ten Commandments, were given to tell us that these things are not right. We shouldn't live this way. So offense keeps us from jumping over in order that we might not do the harm that we could do and bring about the evil that we could do because our hearts are evil. Every uh, morning when Elijah wakes up, either Olivia or I have to get him. In a couple weeks ago, he's been, he's been doing better. Um, he's been doing better at sleeping later. But he used to, for a long period of time, he would wake up at 5 in the morning. We'd take turns going in and getting him. And so a couple weeks ago, one day, 5 o'clock, I, I went in and I got him. And typically what we do, we'd hold him, we'd try and rock him back to sleep, and then um, we'd lay down on the bed, and, and he would, like, roll around, he would kick the wall, and then he would eventually fall asleep for another, like, 30, 45 minutes to an hour. So one morning, I fell asleep on the bed, and Elijah woke up, and he said to me, all, all done, all done, and I'm done with sleeping. And so um, I said, no, Elijah, go back to sleep, and I pushed him back on the bed so he could fall back asleep. He's like, all done, all done, and he was upset, and so... Um, he's never done this before, never done this before, but he got up, got off the bed, and he opened his bedroom door, and he walked out. He's done that before, but usually he'll go to the living room. He'll stand in front of uh, Olivia's door where Olivia and I sleep, but I, I've since left the bed, and, and Manny's in there. He'll stand in front of there, and he'll say, Mommy, Mommy, and then he'll run back to where I am, knowing that she's not going to open the door, but maybe somehow she just happens to be standing right by the door, and she'll open up, but she, he does that. Then he went back. He goes back in the room, but this time he went out, he said, mommy, mommy, and then he came back, and then he looked at me, and then he walked back out. He walked back out, and this is, this is what he's never done before. He unlocked the door, the deadbolt on our door. He opened the door. At this time, I'm not sleeping anymore. I'm watching him. I'm watching to see what he's going to do. thought maybe he'll open the door, feel, oh, it's a nice day outside, close the door. He opens the door, and then without putting his shoes on, because he can't put his shoes on, he walks outside. Okay, so some of you guys are like, this makes no, he's, he's, a, he's almost two years old. So some of you are like, he's like a 12-year-old boy. No, he's, two, he's almost two. So he's walking outside. And so from here, I can still see him because he's left the door wide open from the bed. And I'm just kind of like spying on him. And then he walks down to where the flower garden is that my father-in-law has beautifully planted. And he's looking at it. It's like, oh my gosh, he's going to eat it or something like that. So... <laughs> He's, he's about to destroy that, and then he, like, moves up, and then he goes down the two stairs, and he's standing in front of the car. I'm like, what is he going to do? So at that point, I said, okay, he can't, because he, at this point, by the time I get to him, he could run out in the street. So I come out, I run out, and I say, Elijah, and I stand at, on, the, on our, our porch. I say, Elijah, come back. And he's like, he's, he shakes his head like this. 
<laughs> so I said, Elisha, come back in. We're going to go see mommy now. He said, no, no. And so I, I walked over to him and then he started, he thought it was a game. He started running away, but I caught him pretty quick and I brought him inside. And then he's like kicking his feet as I'm holding him and I'm bringing him inside. I close the door. I lock the door and then he loses. He just starts crying like crazy. And so I thought, wow, that fence would have been really good at a point like this so that he couldn't get out. And so he's crying, he's crying, he's crying. And so once he calms down, I know you can't ever reason with a crying child. One of our girls is a teacher, and she says whenever her her student is crying, she tells them to look at the wall and cry and cry and cry, and she won't talk to them until they stop crying. I don't do that because I'm not heartless like that. But uh, (laughs) once Elijah calmed down, pat him down. It's okay, Elijah. It's okay. It's okay. We only have like three teachers in here, so you decide who it is. Calm down. It's okay. And then once he calmed down, again, great teaching moment here, sat down, had a, had a man-to-man, right, bro-to-bro talk. said, Elijah, you okay? He shook his head no. said, Elijah, why were you so upset? Why were you so upset that I wouldn't let you go out there? Do you know what could have happened? You could have gotten taken, and I'm not Liam Neeson, I can't find you. You could have, you could have run out into the street. You could have gotten hurt, but you know what else? You could have hurt these flowers. You could have stepped on them. You could have destroyed them, and I needed to fence you in. So why were you so upset? And this is what he said to me in his deepest voice. That, Father, (laughs) you are a bad, oppressive, repressive, evil, domineering tyrant. You're always seeking to restrict my freedom, my joy, my life. You impinge upon my freedom by establishing limitations and boundaries so that I cannot enjoy the fullness of life as I was meant to live. That's what he said to me. And I said, Elijah, you have no idea how much I love you and why these things are preventing you from harm and from, from harming other people. And he said that all in, in just one word. It was like, that's what he said. But I understood what he was saying. That's what he said to me. I said, no, Elijah, you don't understand. He doesn't understand what you and I do understand. That we put boundaries around things that are valuable to us. In order that we might protect those valuables. That's why you put a fence around your house when your dog is running around. Because your dog is valuable and you don't want your dog to get harmed. That's why you provide protection and boundaries. That's why you get insurance for your life, for your home, for your car. Because those things are valuable. Those things are important to you. That's why you put things around your cell phone because your phone is important to you. And if you've got an iPhone or a smartphone or some other, you don't put, oh my gosh, I got this like brand new ghost armor around my flip phone. You don't do that. Because that flip phone is not very valuable to you. But you put it around things that are important and valuable to you. You know what happens when you don't protect the things that are valuable? Yesterday I was hanging out somewhere and Elijah had my phone and he thought it would be a good idea to throw it on the ground. And he did and my phone cracked. So sad. So sad. Anyone want to buy me a new phone? So this is what happens when we don't put protection around the things that are valuable. They get hurt. And a lot of times, these things are, well, they cost a lot in order to repair. The Ten Commandments were given 
Every prohibition, you shall not do this, is a provision for your joy, is a protection for your life. The reason why God puts boundaries around things like your sexuality, around things like your morality, is because those things are important and they're valuable. Because you have no idea, sometimes we have no idea as young people or as we get older, we think, oh, it's just one moment. And, and even if, if no one sees it, then no one's going to know. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's just between me and, and, and myself or me and one other person. We think no one knows. It's not going to hurt. But, but God in his infinite wisdom knows that your life is valuable. And so he puts boundaries around these things in order that they might be protected, provided for, so that we might be able to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. And every time we push back against the word of God, the law of God, the commandments of God, it pushes back against us because God is stronger and he's wiser. And the foolish thing to think is that it will be different with me. That even though everyone else tells me this, even though the Word of God tells me, even though human history tells me this, it'll be different with me because somehow I can cheat the system. It may, it may work out for a little bit. You may go on years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and, and no one ever knows, and it's fine. But one day it's going to catch up. See, God's laws were given to be a fence. The last thing, the last thing the commandments do for us, the last thing that it does is, the last thing that the Ten Commandments do the last function, it's an x-ray. can't really see this very well, right? But this is an x-ray. There's a paperclip in this person's something. Crazy. It's an x-ray. Oh, sorry. You didn't all see it. Okay. Paperclip in there. Yeah. I'm just kidding. That's her clothes or his clothes. But the Ten Commandments give us an x-ray of our heart and shows us, shows us what's really the condition of our heart. See, as soon as the Ten Commandments were given, what did the people of God say? Verse 19, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Why did they say that? Because in hearing the Ten Commandments, they realized how jacked up they were. And in light of the God who gave this command, gave these commandments, gave this law, the thunder, the lightning, the trumpet, the mountain and smoke, symbolizing the holiness of God, they realized, holy cow, we can't stand in his presence. So some of us had a, we had a pretty rough season here in Orlando, right? James and Lauren probably laughing, like a rough season in, in what way? Well, a lot of people got sick because it was too cold here. <laughs> so we got the flu, we caught colds. In fact, how many people, there's like 12 people passed away in Orlando because of the flu, is that right? Yeah. See, and 11 of the 12 because we didn't get flu shots. And one person Anyways, so it was a bad season. But say you're coughing, right? <laughs> and it goes on for like weeks and months. You take your cough syrup, keep on coughing. You take other medications. You get all this stuff done. Finally, you decide, hey, you know what? I need to get, I need to get an x-ray to find out what's going on in my heart. And you go to the x-ray machine. The guy runs your x-ray. He shows it, and he says, oh, my gosh. You've got these tumors 
all in your lungs. Here's what an x-ray does. It shows us the condition of our heart, but it is powerless to change or to heal our sinful, hurting, sick heart. The Ten Commandments are the same way. It is an x-ray to your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. Holy cow, I've got a lot of other gods. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And all of a sudden, when you throw it forward into Jesus' life, he says, no, 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 no. Let's not talk about the letter of the law. Let me get to the heart of it. If you've ever been angry at someone and you held a grudge, you've already committed murder. You've already killed them. So forget the fact that you've never taken a gun or a knife to their head. If If you've held anger and bitterness, then you've committed murder. Forget about the fact that you've never been with a man or a woman before. If you've ever looked with lust upon them, you've already committed adultery. And as soon as they begin to see that, as soon as we begin to look at these Ten Commandments, we're like, holy cow, my heart is sinful and stained and broken beyond measure. So we look at this x-ray of our lesionous, cancerous, tumor-filled heart. What does it cause us to do? It doesn't cause us to try harder to make our heart right by taking all these asthma inhalers and doing all... It does, we're powerless to do that. What ought the x-ray do? It ought to drive us to run to the best doctor that we can who can actually do something about this. Realizing that we are powerless and impotent to do anything, to fix our broken lives. What the Ten Commandments do for us as well. We look at the Ten Commandments, we realize that we've fallen short. Three options that we've got. I don't do these Ten Commandments. I break all of them every day. So what do I do? One way for me to try and rectify that bad news is I try harder and harder and harder to have no other guides. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do all these things right. Because I think unless I do, I will not earn the favor and the love and the approval of God. And that's why many churchgoers are so tired. Because we think that we need to earn the approval of God. Because we think that seeing our sinfulness, we need to fix our messed up heart by doing, 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 and then maybe God can accept me. But we realize it is never, it's never good enough. The other option when we see our sinful heart is we run the other way and we say, you know what, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. I'm just going to go and I'm going to party it up. I'm going to live it up. I've got only one life to live. I'm going to do that. And we live that way. But the third option is to run, to make a beeline to the great physician of our soul and to say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Because I cannot do anything to fix my stained heart. I cannot do anything to fix my broken life. You see, the reason the Israelites said, don't let God talk to us. Moses, you talked to us because they knew that they needed an intermediary. They could not stand 
in the presence of God. They said, Moses, be our mediator. But the problem is that Moses would die because he too was sinful. So where would the mediation come from? Where does the mediator come from? In our lives. It comes from the very one who is the healer of our soul. The very one who is the great, the only one who could look at the x-ray of his heart and say, I am clean. I am perfect. I did it right. I'm healthy. The only one who could do that took our cancerous sin upon himself and became stricken in every part of his body, hung on a cross, and he died, taking our sickness upon himself so that by his wounds, we can be healed. It's Jesus Christ and no other that we run to when we look at the commands and we say, God, I need you. I need a savior in my life. I put my tr- I stop trusting in myself. I throw all of my life upon him and I find that the only way I can make it as a child to, into the community of God is by Jesus Christ and by him alone and by putting my faith in him. It has nothing to do with what I do. I put my faith in him and he calls me his child and then he gives me the jersey so that I can be his. And only when we believe and understand that the great physician has healed our soul, forgiven our sin, it's only then that we can begin to live. It's only then that we have the power and the grace and the desire to live a life in obedience to the command so that we can show the world the character of our God. The relationship has to happen first. And it comes by putting our trust in Jesus. There's no other way. You can't earn it. Your parents can't pass it down to you. Your grandparents can't pray that into your life. It has to be you making a choice to surrender your life to him. And when he does, begin to live in the beauty and the life and the fullness that he's promised to us. It's a sign. The word of God is a sign that distinguishes us from the rest of the people of the world. It's a fence that protects us, that provides for us. And it's an x-ray that drives us into the arms of the great physician so that we might once and for all be healed. Let's pray. We uh, take a moment to pray. Do you know the joyful freedom that comes in living in obedience to the word of God? If not, is it because we're trying to earn and buy our way, our acceptance, our approval, our affirmation, our affection from God? And it begins with God's word. It begins with him. He says, this is how you can become a child. This is how your broken life can be fixed. Not by you putting a Band-Aid on your cancer, only by having a ceremonial heart transfusion blood transfusion, heart transplant where God takes away your sinful heart, your stain, your your sick, your calloused heart and pours into you the perfect heart of Jesus. That's the only way. And it comes by faith. Again, I want to take a step of and give an invitation here for any of us in here who've been trying on our own to make it right with God only to realize that we've made it worse and worse. Maybe we've seen our sinfulness and and instead of 
going to Jesus, we felt like this is too much for me to do. So we ran from God and plunged headfirst into the world and we're realizing that even that life doesn't, that life doesn't satisfy. There's pleasures, yeah, but the pain of that life is a lot longer lasting. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, he says, at the door of every human heart, I stand and I knock because I want to come in and I want to have fellowship with you. I want to change your heart. I want to fix your life. I want to make it right from the inside out. So if you're in here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, but you want to do that because you feel like, yeah, you know what? All of my life I've been searching. And at the end of every broken road, at the end of every closed door, at the end of every shattered dream, Jesus was there waiting for me, but I ignored him and I pushed him away. But today, I see the one whose voice I've heard calling my name. And I want to put my trust in him today. If that's you with all of us just praying and seeking God, if that's you and you want to put your trust in Jesus today so that you could begin a new chapter of life where Jesus says, God's word says, the old has gone and the new has come. Just from where you're seated, just invite you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you up here or anything like that. We'll just all together pray a prayer aloud. If that's you, just raise your hand. Thank you. I see a young lady here in the front. See you. Thank you. Anyone else like that? Just, I need Jesus in my life. I need Jesus to change this heart of mine. Anyone else like that? Whether you've been going to church for a long time or today's your first time, doesn't matter. I need Jesus in my life. Thank you, sir. See you in the... I see you. There's a couple people in here just want to make that decision to surrender their broken lives to Jesus that our hearts might be changed. From wherever you... Okay, thank you. See you, another young lady here. From where you are, I'm just going to invite us to, to pray together. If you could... If you want to mouth these words or whisper these words as a way of encouraging the three people in here who have raised their hand and said that they want to put their trust in, in Jesus. You can repeat this prayer after me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that speaks personally to my heart. This morning I realize that not only am I sinful, but I am beyond human repair. But what I could not do and what others could not do, you did for me by sending your son Jesus to live the perfect life and to take my punishment on the cross. I turn my heart over to you. I trust in you to be the healer of my heart, the forgiver of my sins, and the leader of my life.
Take my life. I need you. Fill me now with your presence and help me to be the child of God that you want me to be. Thank you for loving me. I love you because you love me first. So Father in heaven, we thank you for the confession of the saints of God, for those who have confessed years ago or months ago. We thank you for the renewal of that vow that they've made, the renewal of the good news being replayed in their hearts and in their minds this morning. And for those who have put their trust in you for the first time, God, you alone know the hearts of your people. We pray, Lord, that if it was a genuine confession of faith, that because of Christ, they are now a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The cancer diagnosis, the life sentence has been wiped out we can live forever in you that though we die we can live eternally in your presence thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives continue to shape and to mold us to be the people that you want us to be we love you we thank you we pray all these things in jesus name